President Biden is lobbying for his $2.3 trillion in infrastructure plan, trillion with a T. Did you know that another American president, a very important one in our history, actually advocated for an infrastructure amendment to our Constitution? <laughs> the delicious irony of it is that, before becoming president, this particular president was actually against big government spending on infrastructure. I guess, I guess the presidency changes people. Hey there, news peelers. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2021. And this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> and oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh, sometimes it offends, and sometimes it just shocks. Like did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of these stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. Last week, on March 31st, President Biden presented his $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan in the Union Hall in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He said, quote, Two years ago, I began my campaign here in Pittsburgh. I was running to build the backbone of America. And today, I return as your president to lay out the vision of how we do that. The same day as the president's speech in Pittsburgh, the White House published a fact sheet on the American Jobs Plan, which the $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan is a part of. It's a long narrated document. The Wall Street Journal does a great job of demonstrating Mr. Biden's infrastructure plan schematically in uh, squares and rectangles, the sizes of which are proportional to the allocated funds for each sector of the economy. For example, funding for transportation takes up several big blocks that together comprise the biggest chunk of the infrastructure puzzle. To be exact, $620 billion, which is almost 27% of the $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. This transportation fund also includes $174 billion for electric vehicles. Um, so it gives us Americans tax incentives to buy <laughs> more Teslas and other electric cars. Separately, there's $300 billion for manufacturing. $286 billion for buildings and $266 billion for utilities. But there are also big ticket items that arguably, strictly speaking anyway, don't fall within the rubric of infrastructure. They include $137 billion for education, $400 billion for home and community-based care for the disabled and the elderly, and $280 billion for job creations and innovations. 
as detailed in a recent New York Times article. Republicans are none too happy about Mr. Biden's historic infrastructure plan. As they see it, the main problem isn't the money that's being spent on roads and bridges. The main problem is the money that is not being spent on roads and bridges and on harbors and on airports. For Republicans, the main problem is the billions of dollars spent on, quote, liberal ideas that are sneaked into an infrastructure bill. I mentioned them before. Um, again, they include big ticket items like elderly and disabled care, like providing fast internet for all Americans, and green energy stuff like electric car charging stations. These are all things that Republicans claim don't count as real infrastructure. We'll spare you more details here. You can Google it to your heart's content. <laughs> Suffice it to say that it's a big political fight. What interested us is, well, why is there a political fight? Call me naive here, but we're not talking about civil rights, gender rights, China trade disputes, border wall and emigration. I mean, buildings, roads, bridges and utilities, infrastructure people. These are not exactly sexy stuff. Plus, almost every state could get a piece of the pie. So why is it so contentious? Because infrastructure has almost always been contentious. In fact, even more contentious than now. Stay with me as I peel the history behind this news. As we discussed in a previous podcast, the Articles of Confederation was America's first constitution. Well, if we can call it that, it loosely coalesced the 13 states together. It was fully in effect from 1781, just two years before our Revolutionary War formally ended, until 1789, when the United States was formed under the Constitution, the real Constitution, the one we have now. Several events became the impetus for getting rid of the Articles of Confederation. One was the inability of the 13 states under the Articles of Confederation to mount an effective military response to the Shays' Rebellion uh, in western Massachusetts, which lasted some six months. The newly independent states, the 13 states, had to deal with a farmer's rebellion against heavy taxes. Always the damn taxes, right? <laughs> Abigail Adams, the wife of the future President Adams, whose home was in Massachusetts, but at the time she was in England, in the letter to Thomas Jefferson, who was in France at the time, called the rebels ignorant, restless desperados, without conscience or principles. But we're not here to talk about rebellions. We're here to talk about infrastructure, which brings us to another reason why the Articles of Confederation were given up for good. The other reason was, surprise, surprise, infrastructure. And I don't mean charging stations. And here's the backstory for that. Connecting the Potomac River to the interior via canal to the Ohio River had been a lifelong passion of George Washington. 
After the Revolutionary War ended, Washington grew obsessed with his grand dream. One visitor to his Mount Vernon home, which was right along the Potomac River, said that Washington had infected me with the canal mania. Washington had two motivations for this grand project. One was personal, that it would bring commerce to the lands in the West that he owned. Hence, it would increase their value. His second motivation was public, that a canal from the Potomac River to the Ohio River would connect coastal America to the growing stretches of its western inlands. So, this second part was a matter of national unity. Since Virginia and Maryland shared the rights of the Potomac River, Washington worked tirelessly to get them to cooperate. And being who he was, one of the wealthiest Americans and the Revolutionary War hero, he held an interstate conference between Maryland and Virginia at his home in Mount Vernon. Long story short, the Potomac Project didn't pan out because it didn't go deep enough into the interior to connect to the Ohio River. If it had, it would have been by far the greatest civil engineering feat of the 18th century North America. Regardless, according to Ron Chernow, George Washington's biographer, its real value in American politics had long since been realized. And that value, that real value that Mr. Chernow refers to, is that it convinced everyone, foremost Washington, that this going back and forth between states to convince, coordinate, control, and secure funding for a project just, just don't work. That they needed a better system, a strong government that can take on such colossal projects. So, in 1787, delegates from a majority of states get together to fix many things about the shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation. <laughs> Instead of fixing it, though, they overreach. They create an entirely new political entity under a new constitution, which we have now, the one that has lasted for 232 years. This is how our constitution deals with infrastructure. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution gives Congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. This is known as the Commerce Clause, which describes enumerated powers of the federal government. It is also called the expressed or explicit powers of the federal government. Clause 18 of the same section of Article 1 also gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by the Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. This is called the Necessary and Proper Clause. So arguably, through these two powers, Congress could promote commerce, navigation, etc. Then there's another relevant clause in Article 1, Section 8. Clause 7 states that Congress has the authority to establish post offices and post roads. I'm beating around the proverbial bush here, guys, because the thing that you waited for for so long to hear, infrastructure, is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. In fact, 
Many scholars and historians claim that the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, which is the last amendment to the Bill of Rights, that was ratified in December 1791, a little more than two years after the Constitution itself was ratified, actually leaves much of the authority over intrastate infrastructure to the states. Yeah, let me say that again. Intrastate infrastructure. Not inter, but intra, meaning within the boundaries of a state. Remember intrastate, because we'll come back to it. In all its legal majesty, the Tenth Amendment reads as follows. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. In law school, I spend <laughs> endless hours reading the opinions of giants of American jurisprudence interpret this amendment. <laughs> Let's just say I ended up practicing patent law afterwards, not constitutional law. But seriously, whatever happened to infrastructure, which was so important to the founders? It's not like the delegates to the Constitutional Convention forgot about it. Oh no, in fact, they specifically discussed it. Benjamin Franklin wanted to add a clause that gives Congress the authority to cut water canals where necessary. James Madison, who's widely known as the father of the Constitution, went further. He essentially proposed that the federal government chartered companies to do infrastructure projects, such as cutting water canals, when state legislatures were not willing to do so, and that this would remove, quote, the political obstacle. Ah, politics. Tellingly, as a sign of things to come, one delegate complained that while all states would end up paying for a canal or a bridge, only one or two states would benefit from it. Hmm, interesting. In a moment, we'll share with you the early story of America's infrastructure. This podcast is available on your device on Spotify, Apple, Google, and other podcast apps. You can also listen to us online on Anchor.fm. Subscribe and follow our podcast. And don't keep us all to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. The first significant infrastructure legislation that came out of the Constitution's Commerce Clause, which we reviewed before, was the Lighthouse Act. It became law in August 1789, four months after George Washington's delayed first inauguration. The person that vigorously lobbied for infrastructure spending, which in those days and for decades to come were called internal improvements, was none other than our famous Alexander Hamilton, our first Secretary of Treasury. Hamilton pushed for infrastructure, such as roads and canals, that would become the foundation of America's manufacturing and economy. In so doing, he was partly influenced by the works of the Scottish economist and philosopher Adam Smith, particularly his book The Wealth of Nations, which was first published in 1776, the year America declared its independence from Britain. Adam Smith is widely known 
as the father of capitalism. People always quote or cite him for purely capitalistic propositions, as opposed to Karl Marx, a German philosopher and economist, who wrote the Communist Manifesto in 1848 and is, of course, known for communism and socialism. If you ever have the time, I recommend a classic book by Robert Heilbrunner. It is titled The Worldly Philosophers and includes brief biographies of many major economic philosophers, including Karl Marx and Adam Smith. What you will note, and what most chest-thumping capitalists fail to note, is this, that Adam Smith actually carved out a big exception to government laissez-faire policy towards business. Yes, Adam Smith did want the government to keep its paws off the market, off business. But Adam Smith also wanted the government to put its muscles behind, quote, erecting and maintaining those public institutions and those public works which may be in the highest degree advantageous to a great society, but which are of such a nature that the profit could never repay the expense to any individual or small number of individuals. In other words, the government of a capitalist country, such as the United States, must support infrastructure programs. So in effect, public spending on big public projects was baked into the capitalism ethos from the get-go. But more than economic ideals, the stumbling blocks for internal improvements were a combination of constitutional law and then politics. For many reasons that we won't get into, Hamilton's plan never fully materialized. But here's a delicious irony. For those of you who follow our Instagram page at thepeel.news, you've noticed me do these weekend beach walks where I literally walk on the beach and talk about the history behind news, sometimes knee-deep in ocean water. On more than one occasion, I've talked about the venomous animosity between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton was for sprawling national government with big industry and bustling trade. Jefferson was for a small national government with an agrarian economy, so farmers, not so much manufacturers. Well, guess what? Hamilton gets shot to death thanks to Jefferson's VP, the infamous Aaron Burr, and Jefferson pushes through his arch enemies, Hamilton's policies that increase the size of the government. Isn't that rich? But let's not get confused here. Jefferson was not going whole hog for federal government getting involved with state-level infrastructure. No way. He believed in states' rights. So federal government's infrastructure meddling was unacceptable to him at least legally speaking, constitutionally speaking. So Jefferson demanded an amendment to the Constitution that would explicitly grant the federal government powers to support infrastructure projects within states. So intra-state, the term that I told you to remember earlier. But can you believe it? An amendment to our Constitution for infrastructure? Well, Jefferson's demand for an amendment died on the vine, meaning it never happened. We should make the point, though, 
that Jefferson's view of the constitutional limitations of the federal government to get involved with infrastructure projects was not embraced by everyone in his party. His own Secretary of the Treasury, the Swiss-born Albert Gallatin, didn't believe that the Constitution prohibited the federal government from supporting internal improvements. Gallatin proposed indirect methods of helping infrastructure, such as just funding it and not otherwise getting involved. <laughs> that, is, that in and of itself had huge issues, including corruption that came with federal money without federal supervision. Anyway, Jefferson, this bastion of small government, eventually had to eat his words on small government on at least two issues. First, he signed into law the National Road, the nation's first large-scale internal improvement program, a 130-mile surface road that connected the Potomac River from Maryland to the Ohio River in what is now West Virginia. Remember, Washington wanted to do that through a canal, and that never materialized. Second, Jefferson doubled the size of the country with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, one year before Hamilton was shot death by Aaron Burr. In the biographical book titled Alexander Hamilton, on which the Broadway show is based, author Ron Chernow explains that Hamilton was woefully amused that Jefferson, a strict constructionist of the Constitution, would expand the federal doctrine of implied powers, not explicit powers, implied powers, which was first articulated by Alexander Hamilton himself. The irony is that Jefferson had criticized Hamilton for using this implied power to establish a national bank and other measures which were much smaller in comparison to the Louisiana Purchase. To Jefferson's credit, he considered seeking a constitutional amendment for the Louisiana Purchase, but settled for congressional approval instead. After Jefferson, his political partner, James Madison, continued to talk about an infrastructure constitutional amendment, but that eventually fizzled out. Regardless, during his presidency, Madison did emphasize roads and canals which can best be executed under the national authority. This excited two congressmen to devise their own plans for funding the new nation's badly needed infrastructure. One was John C. Calhoun, a young congressman from South Carolina. He would eventually rise to become John Quincy Adams's vice president. And when John Quincy Adams lost the presidential election to Andrew Jackson, <laughs> John C. Calhoun stayed on as Jackson's vice president. That's like Mr. Mike Pence stayed on as President Biden's vice president. I mean, how would that even work, right? Well, it didn't work. Calhoun quit his vice presidency and went back home to South Carolina and became its U.S. senator and an ardent advocate of states' rights. A little more than a decade ago, while on vacation, I joined a paid walking tour of Charleston, South Carolina. It was, it was given by a local historian. During that tour, our local historian spoke of the Civil War and the antebellum period with such passion as if it was all happening just five years ago. And Calhoun was read large in that tour. There were plaques and posters in his name. There was the Calhoun Mansion and Calhoun's statue in Marion Square. 
We've heard of Calhoun most recently in connection with the Black Lives Matter movement last year when his name was removed from Clemson University and his statue in Charleston was removed last year as well because of his strong support for slavery. But before he became known for his passionate defense of states' rights, for limited government, and for the legal theory of nullification, which meant that states could invalidate federal law that the state deemed unconstitutional, yeah, before all of that, get this. Calhoun was a passionate nationalist. He favored a strong national government in his early career. In fact, he believed in a permanent fund for internal improvement. Imagine that, a permanent fund for internal improvements. Oh boy, Democrats would love that now, right? Yes, they would. And years later, many, many, many years later, a Democratic president did propose a national infrastructure bank. So something similar to a permanent infrastructure fund that Calhoun had in mind. But the pro-slavery Mr. Calhoun wouldn't be happy about this. In fact, he'd probably roll over in his grave because the president that proposed the National Infrastructure Bank is not white. How times change. Anyway, in his early career, Calhoun partnered up with the Speaker of the House, Henry Clay, who was the national figurehead of the American system, of which this proposed permanent infrastructure fund was a part. The American system was essentially Hamilton's nationalism, but less elitist and philosophical and more egalitarian and popular. But the tenets were the same. In addition to believing in a national bank and a tariff system to protect American industry, it also believed in federal subsidies for roads, canals, and other internal improvements to develop profitable markets, well, with just two days left of his presidency, James Madison vetoed Clay's and Calhoun's American system. Apparently, this was a total shocker. No one had expected the veto. <laughs> resorting, resorting to his famed verbal flourishes, uh, Henry Clay said something to the effect that even an earthquake in Washington, D.C. wouldn't have been as shocking. So, with his veto, Madison killed comprehensive national infrastructure reform. But the dream of an American system did not die. In a moment, we'll share with you the rest of the story of the American system, a tale of America's struggle for internal improvements, our infrastructure. I hope you're enjoying this podcast, and if you are, please consider supporting the show for as little as 99 cents a month, which can be canceled anytime. Start your support by clicking the support link right here in the detailed description for this episode, or click the support button in our podcast profile on anchor.fm. President James Monroe followed President James Madison. He was a Virginian just like Washington, Jefferson, and Madison before him. Yeah, four of our initial five presidents were from Virginia. And he too was a Jeffersonian. And as the last president from the founding period, by the 1820s, he was a bit of out of step 
with the latest fashion. There's a, there's a great story about how when Monroe presented the Monroe Doctrine in his seventh annual message to Congress on December 12, 1823, he was, quote, still wearing knee breeches, silk hose, and buckle-top shoes. But his cabinet and most members of Congress were, by then, wearing ankle-length trousers. Perhaps more than anything, his clothes showed that Monroe belonged to another generation and that he was, truly, the last of the Founding Fathers. A year before this historic address, Monroe vetoed a congressional bill that aimed to repair the National Road. Remember, the one that Jefferson was involved with, and before that, Washington wanted to have a canal? Interestingly, he didn't have a problem with the Congress funding the repairs. He had a problem with the federal government doing the repairs, as in supervising them, enforcing them, etc., He thought the Constitution didn't allow that. So, in 1824, Congress passed a new bill that only funded repairs and Monroe signed it. This is similar to what Gallatin, Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, had envisioned. The issue of constitutionality, of upgrading and expanding America's infrastructure, continued into Jackson's presidency, which was from 1829 to 1837. Henry Clay continued to play a big part as... Jackson's nemesis in pretty much everything, including presidential elections. An interesting note about Henry Clay. He founded the Whig Party, which was sort of, kind of, the successor to Hamilton's Federalist Party. He won his party's nomination to run for president three times, and he lost all three times. The only other guy that I know who matches this record is the Democrat William Jennings Bryan the guy who, in the 1920s, argued against teaching evolution in schools during the Scopes trial. He also won his party's nomination for the presidency, and he also lost the presidential election three times. Henry Clay was Jackson's staunch opponent when it came to infrastructure. Clay wanted to push through his American system plan for internal improvements, and Jackson opposed it mostly on constitutional grounds. In fact, in 1830, Jackson vetoed a bill that funded the government's subscription to the stock of a private company that was to construct a turnpike in Kentucky, (laughs) Clay's home state. And this was a big turning point. When he was about to veto that bill, a prominent Kentuckian named Richard Johnson came to Jackson and warned him that With his veto, he would crush his friends in Kentucky more effectively than if Johnson's hand was on an anvil and it had been crushed by a sledgehammer. I mean, ouch! Pretty dramatic description there, Mr. Johnson. But that's the way uh, people talk back then, with much drama. Despite the drama, or perhaps in spite of it, Jackson vetoed the bill anyway. In fact, during his presidency, Jackson vetoed more legislation than all of his predecessors combined. Jackson favored infrastructure projects in the West more than those in the East. Generally, though, Jackson was against many infrastructure projects because of his belief that the Constitution's Commerce Clause didn't give Congress the power to fund projects that were intrastate only. That word keeps up coming up. Intrastate. Anyhow, 
Jackson's veto of the Kentucky Turnpike Project was a big turning point, as I said before. After that, Congress sort of gave up on big comprehensive infrastructure plans and also changed the way it funded smaller internal improvements from, from allocating money to giving land. But that's not the entire story. <laughs> it never is, right? You see, Jackson had actually funded more infrastructure programs than all of his predecessors combined. It was a monumental achievement. And he did it while accomplishing another monumental feat. He paid off our debt. No, I don't mean he balanced the annual budget. I mean that on, in 1935, President Jackson paid off our country's debt. <laughs> we had zero debt. To those politicians who favor big spending on borrowed money, don't freak out. It's never happened since, and unfortunately, likely it will never happen again. For 70 years after Jackson left the White House, the debate about infrastructure predominantly continued as a legal one. Basically, it's constitutionality. But in 1907, U.S. Supreme Court decision in the case Wilson v. Shaw effectively ended the legal debate. Strangely, this case was not about the U.S. government funding an American infrastructure project but about the U.S. funding the construction of the Panama Canal during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency. So, foreign infrastructure. So, as the constitutional legal debate eventually fizzled out, the fizzle in the political debate picked up steam. Wait, uh, does that analogy really work? Fizzle picked up steam? Um, you get what I mean, though. The debate about America's infrastructure predominantly became political as opposed to legal. And that's where, more or less, we are today. We would be committing history malpractice here if we didn't mention that the U.S. Supreme Court struck down many of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal plans, including public works, based on constitutional grounds, including the Commerce Clause. Eventually, FDR threatened them with court packing, and they miraculously changed their minds. And this Change was playfully called the switch in time that saved nine. Anyway, FDR profoundly increased the federal government's imprint on America's infrastructure during the Great Depression. Then, President Eisenhower, Roosevelt's World War II D-Day general, signed into law the interstate highway system. And he paid for it not by increasing income tax or borrowing, but by a gasoline tax. This is important, because although Eisenhower's interstate highway system cost more than all of FDR's New Deal spending, it did not affect the national budget. That would be like magic to our modern politicians and presidents, a monumental achievement that does not break the bank. The thing about Eisenhower's highway system is that the need for it emanated from his own personal experience. There are two stories to this. The first is that in 1919, after World War I, the U.S. Army decided on something that had never been done before, sending a convoy from Washington, D.C. to San Francisco. Eisenhower was an officer on that convoy. Do you know how long it took Eisenhower to get to San Francisco from our nation's capital? 
62 days. That's more than two months. Then after World War II, Eisenhower saw Germany's Audubon system and was inspired. Stay with me as we get into the perspective. President Obama is claimed to have invented the term shovel-ready, as in a stimulus package for infrastructure that is ready to get cracking on construction immediately. But apparently, Mr. Obama's infrastructure plans didn't go too far, that they got stuck in our government's bureaucratic red tape. So, in 2011, even Mr. Obama had to admit that shovel-ready was not as shovel-ready as we expected. From that same year, the Obama White House Archives website has a page that details five facts about his National Infrastructure Bank. This bank was proposed in a 2011 bill, which was part of Mr. Obama's American Jobs Act of 2011. It did not pass. But the concept of a permanent fund for infrastructure has been a unifying dream of many American politicians of different creeds and colors including John C. Calhoun, a pro-slavery politician from a period that we have thankfully long passed. Presidential candidate Ms. Hillary Clinton and later President Trump had big infrastructure improvement plans that did not come to fruition either, but their plans were not as big as Mr. Biden's. President Biden's plan is a behemoth in comparison to theirs. But getting infrastructure passed through Congress and then actually getting it to effectively work its way through the halls of our governments, federal, state, and local, is hard work. It doesn't happen often. Sometimes it becomes a big money pit, like Boston's Big Dig, the underground tunnel mega project that ran years behind deadline and billions over budget. Sometimes it makes people laugh, like... <laughs> <laughs> like Alaska's bridge to nowhere, connecting an island with a population of 50 to the mainland at a cost of $223 million, which would have been $4.5 million per resident of that island had Congress approved it. And sometimes they followed the popular sentiment, as, as did the popularity of the bicycle and new invention in the 19th century spurred the Good Roads movement in the 1880s. So, with all this history, is President Biden's infrastructure plan shovel-ready? Will there be any bridges to nowhere? Or big wastes of money like Boston's Big Dig? In the epilogue of his book titled Eisenhower, Soldier and President, biographer Stephen Ambrose makes a point that left an impression, on me anyway, quote, one of the measures of greatness in a president is the change he brings about that is permanent and that affects every citizen's life forever after. If this is done right, Mr. Biden's $2.3 trillion infrastructure that we've been talking about here, history will remember Mr. Biden, the way we remember Teddy Roosevelt's conservation of our natural heritage, our national parks, the way we remember Wilson's establishment of the Federal Reserve, FDR's introduction of Social Security, the minimum wage, and much more, and Eisenhower's highway system. 
By the way, all these presidents had to contend with strong political opposition along the path to reaching their goals. But if Mr. Biden's behemoth infrastructure bill is not executed correctly, well, that will be the subject for a future podcast episode. If you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The beat and rhythm you've been hearing throughout this podcast and are hearing now is called The Success. It's by Keys of Moon Music. And the link and license for this music is provided in the text content for this episode. The names of books we mention are also there, along with their Amazon links. Of course, as always, we don't endorse any books or Amazon, and we don't have any financial relationships with either. We just think these books are pretty cool history, and you're welcome to read them if you wish. Also, for citation to specific pages of these books and other sources we use, you're welcome to visit the post for this episode on our website, thepeel.news. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at thepeel.news. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with appeal.news.